I'm Wales. I have a few uh, players that are my favorite that play for Wales. This is Oshin. He's 10 years old and lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And right now, he's in his room playing FIFA 22. Well, rugby is the biggest sport there. And soccer is, I believe, is the second. He left Wales in 2008 when he was six years old. And he's my son. When you wear your Welsh shirt to school, what, are you, what questions do friends ask about your Welsh shirt? Um, like, they usually, like, say that they like it, like, like it and stuff because it's different. They ask, like, why is the dragon a symbol of uh, Wales? And usually, like, oh, which store do you get it from and stuff? They may, I said they made it to the World Cup this year. Osh might not know it, but when he's with his mates at elementary school, he's engaging in sports diplomacy. A form of soft power diplomacy that has deep relevance with his country of birth. Welcome to Soft Power, a podcast that will explore the impact Welsh sport has on the brand of Wales and how it is applied in the real world. My name is Reese Waters, and I'm going to use the following episodes to explore sport diplomacy and how it is rapidly becoming transformative for how Wales interacts with the rest of the world. What exactly do we mean by sports diplomacy? I can't answer that, but this expert can. My name is Gavin Price. I'm heading up the Sports Diplomacy Alliance's um, work in Europe and the UK. Um, sports Diplomacy Alliance effectively works with governments, significant non-state actors, sports clubs, sports people, and, and other parts of society to leverage better societal, societal, diplomatic, and economic outcomes from sport. And what exactly does sports diplomacy mean, and where did that term come from? I knew you'd ask that question, and, and it's a really good <laughs> one. Um, you, you will increasingly see it being used by different actors around the world. I mentioned earlier governments, sports clubs, um, other, other non-state actors like universities or um, uh, maybe maybe nations who are uh, not, not sovereign, maybe regions, places like the Basque Country, places like Catalonia, Wales, they're all deploying that term sports diplomacy. What do we mean by it? Well, I do a lot of work with a gentleman called Dr. Stuart Murray. He's one of the leading lights or experts in sports diplomacy. We try to use this more simple and practical de definition. So sport and politics do mix. They, they mix for, for eons, for good and bad reasons. So if you think about maybe even the ancient Olympiad um, in ancient Greece, whereby athletes were given diplomatic safe passage through maybe warring territories, that's an example of an early form of sports diplomacy. If you think about maybe World War One, when famously the, the British and German troops uh, stopped fighting, stopped hostilities, and they had a game in no man's land of football um, during Christmas, that's another great example. The point is that you know, sports and politics do mix, and sports diplomacy is the, is the studying of that mixing. But if you like, Reese, I can give you the fancier, more academic version or the, or the policy version. It might give clarity. Is that helpful? Go for it. Yeah, that'd be great. Go, go for it. Okay. So it's the strategic use of and partnership with sport, sporting events, and sports people to build relations with people, nations, and non-state actors conducive to win-win outcomes. It's about using sport for good to deliver positive outcomes, to bring networks and people to, together. So examples could be um, international trade um, forums using sort of sports business networking. It could be around nation branding. It might be around projecting um, inclusive or progressive values. You've seen a lot of stuff around what we call athlete activism at the moment. So 
you know, there are a wide number of co uh, uh, causes out there. So somebody like Megan Rapinoe, the, the famous um, American women's footballer, she's done a lot of work around, I guess, women and leadership in sport and championing equal pay um, um, for the US women. So the US women's and men's national team will be paid equally when it comes to international football. Or you might want to look at maybe some of the work even in Wales of people like Gareth Thomas or Jess Fishlock, who, who have gone into bat for um, LGBTI values and things like that. So um, it's a malleable, flexible term. It covers everything from formal diplomatic things like trade, tourism, international security, defence, all the way through to what we call softer power things like social um, social inclusion and progressive values. One of the examples you gave in, in your report was uh, ping pong um, and, and how the US <laughs> okay. and China used ping pong during the um, kind of the, the Cold War. I think that's, you know, in my head, I don't know whether I've just watched um, uh, too many movies from the era, like uh, Forrest Gump, but it seems like that is kind of the, a really good example of how you can find a common language through sport through very different kind of ideologies and, and uh, national kind of constructs, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ping, ping pong diplomacy is, is, I guess, one of the most used or most deployed examples of, of, early sports diplomacy to help sort of thaw or diffuse, you know, um, Cold War rhetoric between um, largely the US and, and the USSR, as it were, were, but East and West. But actually, I, I, you know, I might even give you a sort of a, a more diversified example, because I know you're based in Canada. I know your story. There was also a um, series of what they call ice hockey diplomacy between Canada and, and um, the USSR. Gavin is talking about the 1972 Summit Series, a legendary series of dramatic hockey bouts. It saw Canada defeat a global superpower and transformed the game for generations. Today, it is a firm part of Canadian national identity. So much has changed since those eight games were played. But our fascination with the game has endured. So many people can tell you not only how old they were, but what city they were in who they were watching with when Paul Henderson scored that goal. Another shot by Cornelier. His goal! Canada has tied it up! The game is over! And but even though it's widely known, most of the attention from Canadians today is focused on the on-ice action. But according to Gavin, there was a much bigger play. So uh, around, around those games, there was um, a number of summits that basically help bring together dignitaries from both nations to talk about culture, values, and, and basically lead to, to better ties between East and West. But um, if you're interested in that, there's a, um, an author called um, McSkimmin, McSkimmin, and I'd encourage anybody to look at his, his work if, he's, if you're interested in sort of Cold War sports diplomacy. Yeah, Canadians love the summit. The 72 Summit series is like this legendary moment that people still talk about. They're still making movies about it today. And the whole thing plays out like a Hollywood movie in real life. It's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's kind of gripping emotionally on the ice, but then also the, the bigger things going on behind the scenes kind of they just tie you up together so well. Absolutely. And I think some of that, you know, what you're describing, like that iconography and, you know, the imagery uh, around that, it, it's sort of, it's almost, it's almost timeless. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of exacerbated the long-term legend around this kind of stuff. But, but you know, the, it, those events were pivotal in building better ties at the time and helping the Cold War thaw. So, um, it, you know, it's a great example. You, you mentioned um, 
things like soft power a lot. How could, could you define soft power versus hard power in terms of diplomacy? Uh, just so, just to kind of understand what exactly that means. Put simply, hard power are things like um, um, international security, nuclear proliferation, um, defense. So, so using, I guess, diplomacy for coercive reason. Soft power is more about things that attract people or, or, or are magnets to a country, good things about a country. So the, the things around people being interested in your, your culture, language, music, art, creative arts, media, those those really sort of positive kind of things. I guess with Wales is kind of the, the Welsh government, you know, what they do have say over and what they don't have say over in terms of when you talk about military power or those kind of other elements versus uh, what they they are in control of, I guess soft power that is is the the most important aspect for them in terms of diplomacy. Sure, sure thing. And, and Wales is a fantastic example because Wales and the Welsh government can focus on on positive things. It can talk about it, its culture, its language, um, its progressive values. Um, it, you know, it can talk about. Um, Things like its beautiful topography. Um, it can talk about its positive diaspora, the, the fact that it punches above its weight in things like sports and media and film and those kind of things. So it has a, I guess, a strategic advantage, if you like. And when you talk about sports diplomacy, you give quite a few examples of countries that are doing it well. You know, Australia, in my view, is one of the most advanced. Australia has two main areas of concern on, I guess, foreign policy level. So one is the Pacific. Um, it's worried about Chinese influence in the Pacific, but also making sure that they, um, I guess, underpin and, and further enhance their ties with close nations in the Pacific area, places like Fiji, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, PNG, those kind of places. So it's helping um, those countries build capacity through things like coaching networks, sharing information and ideas on sports science, access to facilities. Um, a good example, the Young Matildas, so that's the Australian women's girls national football team went over on, on a Pacific tour and they trained throughout the week with their counterparts from the Fiji national team or the um, New Caledonia national team, even though they were playing each other. So they built those ties and they also did cultural visits uh, around the games to, you know, sacred sites and learned a bit about the language and culture and those kind of things. So while Australia is doing its thing, the French have a very different sports diplomacy strategy. It's often a horses for courses approach to sports diplomacy. So if you look at the French, whilst they do some of the stuff that the, the Aussies do, a lot of theirs has been around, I guess, bidding for and earning uh, major mega events. And that, that I guess, started way back when around um, Euro 2016. But you've, you've got the Paris Olympics. Next year, you've got the Rugby World Cup. But there's also a swathe of um, mid-tier, quite high-profile other sporting you know, international events that the French have, have got. And they're using those, I guess, as staging posts to, to look at um, how they might project themselves on the best foot on, on the world stage. You may be wondering what Wales is doing in sports diplomacy, and we'll get there. But first, we've mentioned larger countries, and it's really interesting to explore what other smaller countries like Wales are currently doing. Croatia, um, Iceland, Kosovo, North Macedonia, and many others. They, they I think, um, you know, small nations are, you know, they're naturally vulnerable due to their size. So they, I think they're greater, they're, they're kind of smarter at creating sort of coalitions and ties with other small nations. So they, they, I think they're getting a bit more savvy about using those soft power things we, we spoke about 
to really sort of um, build relations and, and ties. I think a lot of Welsh people look to New Zealand sometimes as like a, a great example of a, you know, a smaller rugby nation that seems to get a lot of stuff right. What kind of lessons would you learn from uh, what they've done in sport? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work around the edges with the New Zealand government, or at least. Um, so New Zealand have just appointed their first ever designated sports diplomacy manager. That, and that's a big thing because this individual, his name's Peter McSimmon. He was a ex-top-class um, um, hockey player. In fact, he coached the um, New Zealand men's and women's hockey team at the Birmingham Olympics. And he headed up... Um, New Zealand sports or equivalent of sport Wales um, for New Zealand for a number of years. So he's an extremely networked guy. He understands world sport. And Peter said to me, it's interesting. I would say that New Zealand were kind of ahead of the curve in sports diplomacy circles, ahead of, ahead of Wales. So what I mean by that is that they're probably one of the best small nations for soft power in the world. We all know the story around um, Jacinta Ardern and, and, and the role they play in, in for like the, the UN and their, their sort of progressive inclusive policies. But you, I can't think of, of a more sort of obvious soft power sporting icon than the All Blacks jersey um, and also the, the hacker that goes around that. So that culture permeates and transcends countries and borders around the world and, and even countries that don't really play rugby or it's where it's a nice game. So, it's decided then. To show the world just how crazy about rugby we all are, we're changing our name to... Air All Blacks. They don't have a systematic sports diplomacy policy at the moment, but they are working towards one, and that's one of the reasons why Peter has been recently appointed. But what they have done in the past are some clever things. So they've, they've done some things around... So when they wanted to do an earn a seat at the UN Security Council, one of the things they did was... Um, host a uh, game between the US and New Zealand and Maori in, in, in Washington. And then after the game, some of the players um, uh, met in sort of formal diplomatic surroundings in DC um, for dinner and to talk about the game, talk about ties between two countries. Yes, New Zealand is ahead of the curve, but that doesn't mean that Wales is too far behind. What Wales is doing is, is quite smart around its, they've got a World Cup partner su- support fund. So that's something like 1.8 million funding from the Welsh government that will underpin projects as Wales head to the first World Cup in 64 years. Big deal for Wales, smallest nation in, in FIFA's top 20, smallest nation to qualify for the World Cup, first time on the world stage for 64 years. So that partner fund is going into, into, into a myriad of projects from you know, funding youth empowerment groups like, like the Earth, which is the largest youth movement in, um, in Europe, to do projects. I, I just saw last week they're sending out, for example, a girls team to compete in the World Student Sevens out in New Zealand, and they'll do cultural visits and build ties with the Maori community and learn about that culture while they're there. Um, but you'll, you'll see other things like music projects. There's art collections being create, curated around football, which Wales will take on the road or connected to the national team. They are sending um, the Barry Horns um, national team band out to Qatar, so there's funding for that. And, you know, that's a... You know, they'll create a lot of fun and atmosphere, not just for Wales, but for other competing nations at the tournament. Um, and then hooked all around that, Wales is hoping that those kind of soft power hooks will then be the platform to lead into more formal relations. So, you know, maybe we can we can host um, 
um, a business forum, or maybe we can host a, a some kind of diplomatic forum that's in our best interest. And and in fact, those are already happening. So there are, there are sort of um, trade, business, and sport events driven by the Welsh government in places like North America happening because the US are in our group. There's another event happening in Dubai, and then there are serious things that will happen on the ground in Qatar. So now we know what sports diplomacy is. What exactly does it look like in practice? Over the following season, we will tell you the story of Welsh sports diplomacy. From the sidelines at grassroots grounds to the VIP boxes at major events. Never been to rugby, never seen rugby, don't know how it's played, no nothing. It's not like football that I played in high school. <laughs> Wales is using sports diplomacy to punch above its weight and spark all manner of new opportunities. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please visit wales.com slash Canada to meet the team behind it and to find out more. This has been a Podstarter production. production.